Welcome to episode 8 of The Auto Riff. I am your host with the most, Clint. And on today's episode, I will fill you in on a project I'm doing. We will go through a brief history of Hudson Motors and then catch up on two weeks of This Week in Automotive History. So sit back, put your arm on the armrest, roll the window down, and let's cruise together and talk about cars. So this week on Riff on the Riff, uh, I'm just going to talk a little bit about a project I'm doing uh, that I really wanted to include on YouTube. I'm just uh, not super sure how I wanted to do it yet, and then I got overambitious and went ahead and mostly completed the project anyways without filming any of it. Uh, so I've been, I have been I got a little kid's Chinese ATV, little Tao Tao, last year, uh, probably the end of the writing year, so sometime in the fall. Uh, I got it for a case of beer, so not much into it. Uh, when I got it, it ran, but it was spewing gas out of the overflow, which to me meant the float was stuck on the carburetor. Uh, but instead of just being like, I'm just going to fix the carburetor, I disassembled the whole thing pretty much down to the frame and spent the last bit of last year repainting it. It's for my son. We have another Tao uh, Tao ATV, Tao Tao, whatever. Chinese ATV that we bought brand new for both of my kids for their birthdays because their birthdays are very close last year and that was great except the kids don't share well hi Allison hi William yep you don't share well at all and then so when I rode ATVs as a kid and I would love to again and I I'm hoping after this project is done that I'll get a a big boy ATV and uh, fix that up if I need to fix one up. But I just rode for the pure enjoyment of riding. And my kids, particularly my daughter, like to play games on it. So there was a lot of pretending that they're going to the house and, you know, imagination stuff. And that's, that's, all, that's all well and good. But the thing is they kept turning that ATV on and off, on and off, on and off, on and off. And I kept telling them, you guys are going to burn up the starter. It's just a Chinese ATV. It's not high quality. And that's not to say Chinese people don't put out high quality stuff. I'm not saying that. I'm not being racist. I'm just saying that generally those ATVs are cheap and disposable. So anyways, they did burn up the starter. and But I didn't know that initially. And so that ATV I spent the last part of last year as well thinking initially it was the battery only to find out the battery was fine then changing out the starter solenoid only to find out that that wasn't the problem and then finally getting out my multimeter and checking okay the, the battery has enough voltage and there's enough voltage coming through the starter solenoid and then I took the starter out and found out that that was the problem that wasn't cranking over and then I got a new starter but the problem is I didn't get the new starter until darn near winter and I don't know if any of you live in Canada. I Well, according to my analytics, some of you do, but it gets really cold in the winter and I don't have a heated garage. So I did not work on it. I worked on it a little bit when it was a little bit warmish to do it, but then I quickly found out I was running out of talent and I couldn't get the chain to stay on the starter. There's a chain that goes around the starter down to the flywheel and I couldn't get it to stay on without popping off, without completely disassembling the whole side case of the engine and I was not prepared to do that. A uh, little background, I have ridden ATVs and go-karts and dirt bikes and stuff since I was three. 
but I was always much more interested in the writing portion and less so in the fixing portion, as I have a dad who was a mechanic, and I was like, I would write it, break it, and go, here you go, dad, and I'm sure, I'm sorry, dad, I'm sure exactly what you wanted to do when you got home from fixing other people's crap was to fix my crap, so I do apologize for that, now seeing how much of a hassle that is when you work however many hours a week on top of that. So wherever I was there, I finally took that ATV in this year to a dealership and I straight told them I ran out of talent. Please make the starter work. I got that one back. It's running. Back to the the other ATV. So I painted it last year orange and black because my son wanted it orange. I wanted it to be red to match my truck, but he wanted orange. So we painted it orange. And on top of that, so I painted the wheels, uh, painted the frame, I painted the exhaust again, which I just found out it has an exhaust leak, so but on the portion I did not paint. And I put a new carburetor on it because what happened was I took the carburetor apart to, to clean it out because it's assuming it has a, uh, a uh, stuck float in it, and that's why it's spewing gas out of it. Uh, only to then look on Amazon and find that new carburetors were like $20. So I bought a new one as opposed to having to deal with the old one. So I put the new carburetor on there and that was the extent of where I got last year. And then this year comes and I really wanted to on the YouTube segment talk about or, or do like a, a fixing up of something like a restoring of something. And I thought that ATV would be perfect to start with because I don't have a whole lot of skill. I have enough skill to do a little bit of stuff and I'm smart enough, I think sometimes to figure out the rest of it. But the ATV would good little, a good little starter project to, to start on and then work my way up to bigger things and eventually, you know, maybe a car, who knows? I don't know. But I didn't wait to film it for YouTube because I was too excited when I got the battery into it and I put new switch gear on it this year as well. Uh, the switches were electrically taped to the handlebars. So I, again, went to Amazon and found new switches were $25, ordered that. So now right at this point, you're talking, I have a couple cans of spray paint into this thing. I have a case of beer into it, a $20 carburetor and a $20 set of switches. Uh, and then, so I put it on there and my wife says, crank it over just see, see if it works. And I was like, that's ah, probably not gonna work. Cause at my luck, it, it's not gonna work. And so sure enough, I put the, I, I connect the battery up to it, hit the button and it cranked over. It didn't start initially, but it cranked over. And I, I, it, it shocked me, A, because I wanted to film that and I couldn't recreate that and I wasn't going to. And B, because it actually did something. I had taken a, th taken a thing apart, put it back together and it worked, sort of. I mean, it hadn't started yet. But anyways, then a couple days later, a couple days later go by and I go to start it again. And it tries to run me over because the little ATVs, they don't have transmissions. They don't have a neutral gear. They're just start it and it's in drive. And so it tried to immediately run me over. And so I'm trying to keep it running and hold it back with my leg. And then also adjust the carburetor because again I had a brand new carburetor on I hadn't tried to set the air fuel mixture or idle or anything like that so trying to get it to run consistently and then warm up uh took some took some get it so it was it was hard I ended up jacking it up uh, I had a I have a motorcycle jack um, and I jacked up the back end so that the wheels could spin freely 
long story short, this is already a long story. It's probably my longest segment in the history of this podcast. It's running. And I, so while I have it running and I tuned the carburetor, I got warmed up and tuned it. And which I was, I was proud of also, because I don't think I've ever just messed with a carburetor and got it right. But it was running, it was idling by itself and had good throttle response. So it seemed like the air fuel mixture was spot on. I've decided I'm gonna go ahead and slap the plastic back on this thing and go test ride it. And I did, I screwed all the plastic back on, got on it, rode it around the backyard. My wife came out, saw me riding around. You know, I'm a elephant on a tricycle, but it was fun. And uh, it's not as fast as the other one, but this is a 70 CC. The new one is a 110 CC. All that to say, the project's not done, but it does run, and it is rideable. My son has ridden it, my daughter has ridden it. A uh, quick story about my daughter riding it. She, so the blue new one, sorry, the new one, uh, has a back brake foot pedal and a front brake right hand grip, uh, brake lever, sorry. Uh, the orange, the old one, the case of beer one, has just a left hand brake, which is just the back brake. So my, I, I warned both kids when they got on it, look, look, the brake is not there. Look, look at me, look at the brake, it's not there. It's right here, this is the brake. So my son goes and rides it around, he has no issues, he tests the brakes, he's good. My daughter gets on it, rides it around a little bit, and then decides to go towards where I'm standing, which is, they normally ride around the shed. The shed was blocked off, we're doing some, uh, some landscaping there, and the wheelbarrow's there, and my daughter decides she's not gonna hit the brake, runs into the wheelbarrow, and my nice paint job on the front of it is shot. All you see is now the under blue, on a big scrape of blue across it. And I asked her, why didn't you hit the brakes? Because I was yelling brakes as she was coming up and she said it was too hard. Uh, I wanted to record a segment with her here to get her reaction to it. But uh, since then we have ridden a few more times. There is a small problem with the, uh, the switch gear where after so many starts for whatever reason I have to unplug it and plug it back in otherwise it won't start I don't really know what's going on there. I'll I'll have to figure that out and then I want to get a new set of headlights on it and uh, Probably a new exhaust now from what I'm seeing and it needs a new seat. It's all tuck taped not duct tape tuck taped uh, up so uh, As that all goes along I'll keep uh, keep everybody in mind and I'll keep talking about that and I'll try to put it on YouTube. I'm trying to, I want to expand the YouTube content because the YouTube seems to do better than the podcast part. And eventually, right, so right now I take the audio from YouTube. Sorry, I take the audio from the podcast and I put pictures to it on YouTube. And I want to eventually be, just do the YouTube show and pull the audio and make that the podcast. We're on step two of a very large set of steps uh, for the show. And that's where I'm at right now. It's step two. Which is, you know, I didn't even know if I'd get to step two. So that's it for the Riff on the Riff. I'm sorry, this was a really long segment of me talking about a Chinese ATV project. But uh, I really wanted to fill you in because I was really excited about getting it running. So for here, we're going to head on to the history segment and talk about the Hudson Motor Car Company. Uh, I hope you enjoy that. Thank you again for listening to this part. And I'm sorry for the length. For part one of this new series, I am going to do automakers from the past that are no longer around, starting with Hudson Motors. Hudson Motor Car Company was a Detroit-based company that ran from 1909 until 1954. 
If you're like me, you probably know this company from the Disney movie Cars and the character Doc Hudson as the fabulous Hudson Hornet. The Hudson name actually came from Joseph L. Hudson, the Detroit department store founder of Hudson's department store who provided the necessary capital. I'm not sure if, so in Canada we have Hudson's Bay. I don't know, I'm assuming it's the same guy, but I, I, I'm not really sure. I'm not, I'm not up on my department stores. We'll put it that way. A total of eight Detroit businessmen formed the company on February 20th, 1909 to produce an automobile which would sell for less than $1,000. Uh, I believe in 19, I'm sorry, in 2019 money, that's like $29,000. Some of the other men were Howard Coffin, George W. Dunham, and Roy E. Chapin. In 1910, just one year after it was created, Hudson was the 11th largest auto company in America, and from what I could read, it was 17th internationally. Hudson's first model was the Hudson 20, which sold 4,508 units in its first year. That amount made in 1910 were the best first year's production in the history of automobile industry, which was, quote, a remarkable achievement at a time when there were hundreds of makes being marketed. And production in 1911 increased to 6,486 units. In 1913, they released a signature new engine, the Super 6. The six-cylinder engine offered significantly more power than the four-cylinder configurations common at the time, and it became the power plant used in most Hudson models through 1957 and led to the claim of the world's largest manufacturer of six-cylinder cars. And for 1914, Hudson's were, for the American market, were now left-hand drive, which is uh, obviously common now. In 1916, the powerful Super 6 distinguished itself when Hudson Automobiles broke records for the first two-way transcontinental trip and fastest climb to the top of Pikes Peak. Uh, Fisher's Body Company made bodies for Hudson until 1919 when they were bought out by General Motors. Also in 1919, Hudson introduced the Essex brand line of automobiles. The line was originally for budget-minded buyers designed to compete with Ford and Chevrolet, as opposed to the more upscale Hudson line competing with Oldsmobile and Studebaker. Local coach builder Briggs Manufacturing Company introduced their first-of-its-kind closed coach body in 1922 for Hudson's Essex line. It was the first closed vehicle available at a price close to its open-bodied brethren. And in 1923, Hudson bodies were built exclusively by Massachusetts company Biddle and Smart. The lucrative contract with Hudson would see Biddle and Smart buy up many smaller lo local coach builders to meet the Hudson demand. In 1924, the Essex line switched to the Super 6 motors from the four-cylinder engines. And in 1926, Hudson was able to build its own steel bodies for their models, but continued to sell aluminum bodies marked as custom, but Biddle and Smart's production dropped by 60% when this happened. From 1927, Hudson gradually became, began to utilize Coach Builders, Briggs Manufacturing Company, and Murray Corporation of America to supplement Hudson's own production, which was expanding domestically and internationally. By 1929, Hudson was the U.S.'s third largest automaker behind Ford and Chevrolet, which was quite a jump from 17th to 3rd, or 11th to 3rd, in essentially less than 20 years. 
So with car prices falling due to the Great Depression and the cost to transport vehicles from Massachusetts to Detroit became becoming too expensive, the contract with Biddle and Smart was terminated in 1930, and Biddle and Smart went out of business shortly thereafter. For the 1930 model year, Hudson debuted a new flathead inline eight-cylinder engine with block and crankcase as a unit and fitted with two cylinder heads. It developed 80 horsepower at 3,600 screaming RPMs. The new eights were the only engine offering in the Hudson line, supplanting the Super 6, which continued on in the SX models. And in 1931, at the Indianapolis 500, Buddy Mars 27 Hudson Special finished 10th with that V8 in it. In 1932, Hudson began phasing out the S6 nameplate for the more, I guess, says modern Terraplane brand name. I don't know. I Terraplane, I guess, maybe in 1932 just sounded super modern and S6 sounded so old school. Oh, S6 has been around since 1919. That's so old. The new line was launched on July 21st, 1932 with a promotional christening by Amelia Earhart. And in that same year, Canadian assembly of a Hudson vehicles started in Tilbury, Ontario. The factory building was owned by Canadian Top and Body Company, which built the motor bodies for the vehicles. In 1935, Hudson introduced the electric hand transmission, which was a revolutionary device that employed a button to shift gears instead of the usual stick shift, though it was known for operating incorrectly. Not what you want to be known for. In 1936, the company introduced a new independent front suspension called the Rhythmic Ride. And after the death of Roy Chapin that year, A.E. Barrett was named president, having started at the company as a stenographer in 1910. Under Barrett's management, Hudson was able to realize a small turnaround in profits, but ultimately continued to lose market share. In 1936, the engines were powerful for the time, ranging from 93 to 124 horsepower. And in 1938, the Terraplane, very modern nameplate, was taken away and was renamed the Hudson 112th. So the Terraplane had a lifespan of six years. In 1939, Hudson hired one of America's first female designers, Elizabeth Ann Thatcher. And then in 1939, also Hudson joined the other American cars in using a column-mounted gear shift lever. Out goes the button shift. In 1940, Hudson introduced coil spring independent front suspension aircraft style shock absorbers mounted within the front springs and a true center point steering on all its models, a major advance in performance among cars and in this price range. The Super 6 model was reintroduced as well. Despite all these changes, Hudson's sales for 1940 were lower than 1939 and the company lost money. Not a lot of companies want to lose money. Turns out, I don't know. The 1941 Hudson's retained the front end styling of the 1940 models, but the bodies were new with five and a half inches added to their length, giving more legroom. And a new manual three-speed synchro mesh transmission came out as well as the convertibles now had power operated tops. And then Elizabeth Thatcher resigned from Hudson in 1941 when she married a Cadillac designer named Joe Oros, and she resigned due to conflict of interest. But in this year, the military contracts brought relief to a company that was steadily losing money so that they could make money again. In 1942, as a response to General Motors' hydromatic automatic transmission, Hudson introduced its DriveMaster system, which is a sophisticated combination of the concepts used in the electric hand 
transmission and an automatic clutch. I'm not going to get into it. There was like three or four modes. It was very confusing. I'm not going to go into it. If you want to look it up, look it up. I'm, I'm not going to talk about it too much here. And as ordered by the federal government, Hudson ceased auto production in 1942 until 1945 in order to manufacture material during World War II, including aircraft parts and naval engines and anti-aircraft guns. The Hudson Invader engine powered many of the landing craft used on the D-Day invasion of Normandy on June 6, 1944. But production resumed right after the war. Uh, it included a three-quarter ton pickup truck, the C-28, which is as sharp a truck as I've ever seen. For the 1951 model year, the six-cylinder engine received new block and thicker walls and other improvements to boost horsepower by almost 18% and torque by 28.5%, making Hudson a hot performer again. The GM-supplied four-speed hydromatic automatic transmissions was now optional in Hornets and the Commodore Custom 6s and 8s. Hudson's strong, lightweight bodies combined with its high-torque inline six-cylinder engine technology made the company's 1951-54 Hornet an auto racing champion, dominating NASCAR in the 1951, 52, 53, and 54. I believe it won the championships. Yeah, it won the championships in all those years. Uh, that is where the fabulous Hudson Hornet comes from in the Cars movie, was those model years of uh, the Hornet. And as the post-war marketplace shifted, the smaller US makers like Hudson found it harder to compete with Ford, GM, and Chrysler, which were considered the big three. During the 1950s, they're still considered the big three today. The big three could afford constant development and styling changes so that their cars looked fresh every year, whereas the smaller manufacturers could only afford gradual changes. Hudson's once innovative step-down unit body construction made restyling difficult and expensive. Although Hudson's dominated racing during this period, their feats did little to affect showroom traffic. So in this case, winning on Sunday did not sell on Monday. Sales fell each year from 1951 to 54, and only the Korean War military contracts kept this company afloat. On March 20th, 1954, the Hudson Motor Car Company reported a loss of $10,411,060 and, and compared to a profit in 1952. After the company's high-priced jet compact car line failed to capture buyers in a second straight year, so stop there for just a second, the jet compact car line I only recently found out about on Rust Valley Restorers when they blew one up. If you haven't gotten that far in that show, I apologize. Hudson CEO A.E. Barrett engaged with George W. Mason CEO of Nash Kelvinator to discuss the possibility of a merger with Nash, Mason already had the vision of merging the four independent automakers, which were Nash, Hudson, Packard, and Studebaker, into one company to compete with the big three. Having floated the idea as early as 1946 with Packard to no avail. Mason had previously discussed the idea with Barrett in 1952, and on January 14, 1954, an agreement was reached and Nash and Hudson executives took the first steps to bring the two companies together. The last car using the Hudson nameplate was produced in 1957. So some Hudson firsts over their lifespan were the balanced crankshaft, dual brakes, and they were the first to place oil pressure and generator warning lights on the dashboard. So that's a brief history of the Hudson Motor Company. If you have any other information or you'd like to include or a multitude of things that I missed for time reasons, Please email me or send me a message on the social medias. And now we're going to go on to this week in automotive history.
on This Week in Automotive History. So we're going to be looking at two weeks because I missed last week because of Easter and wasn't able to do it with, you know, family time and all that. Uh, so March 29th through April 11th is the time period we're going to be looking at. On March 29th, 1910, C.N. Teeter was granted a patent for his oil-regulating piston rings, leading to his founding of the Perfect Circle Company. So I guess that before that, pistons were just slapping around in the piston sleeves with uh, no oiling capacity whatsoever. On March 30th, 1998, the last air-cooled Porsche 911 was delivered to its proud owner, Jerry Seinfeld. On March 31st, 1900, the first car advertisement to run in a national magazine appeared in the Saturday Evening Post. The W.E. Roach Company of Philadelphia, Pennsylvania ran an advertisement featuring its jingle, Automobiles That Give Satisfaction. On April 1st, 1961, the Amphicar, the first mass-produced amphibious automobile for sale to the public, was introduced in New York. Being that that was released on April 1st, how many people do you think thought it was an April Fool's joke? On April 2nd, 1956, Alfred P. Sloan stepped down after 19 years as chairman of General Motors, with Albert Bradley elected as his successor. Sloan is recognized as the creator of the GM Corporation as it exists today. On April 3rd, 1885, Daimler was granted a German patent for his one-cylinder water-cooled engine design, where cool water circulated around the engine block, preventing the engine from overheating. Today's engines still employ Daimler's basic idea. On April 4th, 1929, Carl Benz died on this day at the age of 84, while also basically inventing the automobile. As we know in episode one, he is also credited to have invented, among other things, the clutch, the carburetor, and the spark plug. On April 5th, 1921, the Chevrolet Brothers Manufacturing Company was formed by Lewis and Arthur Chevrolet. On April 6th, 1912, the Model 30 Cadillac became the first car to be fitted with both electric starting and lighting, which was the famous Delco system. On April 7th, 1936, the Fiat 500, commonly known as, and I'm going to mispronounce this, Topolina, Topolino, sorry, was introduced. The name Topolino translates literally as Little Mouse in Italian, but is also the Italian name for Mickey Mouse and it was one of the smallest cars in the world at the time of its production. On April 8, 2002, I thought this was pretty cool, Alistair Weaver performed the most donuts, or 360-degree spins, depending on which part of the country or world you're in, in a production car in one minute. He did 22 in, one, in a 1.8-liter Caterham Superlight at Elvington Airfield in North Yorkshire. I have to imagine he got out of the car after that and just fell down. On April 9th, 1905, the first aerial car ferry was put in operation over the ship canal from Lake Avenue in Duluth, Minnesota to Minnesota Point, Minnesota in the U.S. Cars were suspended in the air from a superstructure that loomed 135 feet clear of Lake Superior and the aerial ferry spanned 393 feet in length. I looked at a picture of it. The thing was massive. Like they didn't, it's not like most ferries as we know it, they put it on a boat. 
but this was like literally like a giant crane almost, but with a track that they carried cars across. And we're talking in 1905, how many cars were there? They had only started being built, what, 15 years prior to that. In April 10th, 1916, Ralph Mulford broke the stock car speed record at Daytona Beach, covering a flying mile at 102.53 miles per hour in a Hudson Super 6. Slight callback to the history segment. April 11th, 1916. The Nash Motor Company, based in Kenosha, Kenosha, Wisconsin, was founded by former General Motors President Charles W. Nash after acquiring the Thomas B. Jeffrey Company. So that's all for this week in automotive history. If you have anything to add to that, please hit me up on uh, the social medias and uh, we'll include it in a future episode. Thank you for listening to another episode of The Auto Riff. I do have a quick announcement. I will start doing the show bi-weekly for a while. With it coming into summer, work is getting a lot busier. And when I am home, I'd like to spend more time outside with my wife and kids. The goal from this is to catch up on the YouTube channel and to produce more content both here on the podcast and on YouTube. If you have any comments, suggestions, or additional information, please email me at theautoriff at gmail.com or find me on Instagram, Twitter, or Facebook. All sources for the information in the show will be included in the description. Thanks again for giving me some more time out of your week. Please share the show with your car enthusiast friends and help me grow the show. So until two weeks from now, buckle up and drive safe. <laughs>